and the child she was soon carrying. Not at all insensitive, Julian bowed to his sister-in-law's unspoken wishes. She, after all, was his brother's duchess. His visits to the family estate, Ridgware in Staffordshire, previously quite frequent when he would dutifully call on his mother and then stay to play with his three much younger sisters, grew further apart, eventually dwindling to rare. The great house's staff, who saw far more than anyone supposed, counted that a real shame, but no one paid their opinion any heed. Then Caroline's baby was born and proved to be a son. Christened Henry George Neville Delbraith, the boy bore all the physical hallmarks of a true Delbraith. Viewing said signs with due concern, Caroline swore that, come hell or high water, her son would never be touched by the Delbraith curse. On the morning of the christening, Julian arrived at the church, sat with his mother and sisters, then under Caroline's baleful eye, feeling very much like the wicked witch of the fables, he passed his entirely innocuous christening gift to his mother to convey to his nephew, and immediately the service was concluded, shook his brother's hand, civilly wished his sister-in-law and the bundle held tightly, protectively, in her arms, well, and drove himself back to London. Subsequently, Julian only called on his mother and sisters when Caroline, and preferably baby Henry too, were not, at least at that moment, under the same roof. If George was about, Julian would look in on him, but with such dissimilar characters and the weight of the title on George's shoulders, the brothers had never had all that much in common, a comment, a shared observation, and they parted, amicably, but distantly. Meanwhile, Julian filled his life with his customary round of gambling and dissipation, cards, dice, horse racing, anything racing. He was always willing to gauge the odds and sport his blunt accordingly. Dalliance, with Cyprian's initially, but increasingly with bored matrons of his own class, filled whatever time he had to spare. His reputation as a wine connoisseur continued, but no one could recall ever seeing him in his cups. Then again, it was widely acknowledged that being three sheets to the wind while wagering large sums was never a winning proposition, and everyone knew Julian took his worship at the altar of his family's curse very seriously. And the years rolled on. Through those years, if any had requested enlightenment as to Lord Julian Delbraith's financial state from anyone in the ton, the answer would have been that Lord Julian was certain to be one step away from point nonplus, from falling into the river Tick and very likely drowning. To all seasoned observers, it was inconceivable that anyone could maintain such a profligate lifestyle and wager so consistently and so extravagantly without outrunning the constable. Gamblers always lost, if not immediately, then ultimately. Everyone knew that. Caroline, Duchess of Ridgware, certainly subscribed to that view. More, she believed her feckless brother-in-law was draining the family coffers, but whenever she attempted to raise the issue with her husband, George scowled and told her she was mistaken. When, driven by the need to protect her son's inheritance, she pressed, George's lips tightened, and he coldly and categorically assured her that Julian received only the modest quarterly stipend due to him under their father's will, and nothing more.
that Julian had never requested further funds from the estate, not even from George personally. Caroline didn't believe it, but faced with her husband's uncharacteristic flash of temper, she had to accept his word and retreat. In actual fact, only two people knew the truth about Lord Julian's financial position, his gentleman's gentleman, Rundle, and Jordan Draper, the son of the family's man of business. At Julian's request, Jordan had assumed the handling of Julian's financial affairs, thus separating them from his brother's ducal holdings. Only those two knew that Julian was one of the Delbraiths who cropped up every third or so generation. He was one of the Delbraiths who won. He didn't win every bet, but over any period of time he always came out ahead. Not since he had, at the age of five, first discovered the joys of wagering, had he ever ended a week a true loser. Some weeks he only gave...